Hello and welcome to the Thinking LSAT podcast. Uh, this is episode 52, and I am your host today, Ben Olson in Washington, D.C., and with me, as always, is Nathan Fox in San Francisco, I assume. Yeah, San Francisco. Doing great. How are you? Good. We have a lot of letters to go through today, and I'm excited about that. Uh, I think there was a little lull there, and then all of a sudden, or I shouldn't say letters, emails, right? That's No one writes letters. Have you ever gotten a letter? <laughs> I sometimes write uh, letters back and forth to my eight-year-old niece. That's always kind of fun. I talked to a guy, uh, a, uh, a student, an online student, and I was going to send him mail. And he had me send it instead to his parents' address because he does not know how the mail works in his building. This <laughs> <laughs> is a sign of, a sign of you know, kids these days. But, I mean, it, it totally makes sense, right? Print mail just has to go away. It's just so stupid. There's nothing that comes in the mailbox that's ever good. Oh, I hate it. You know, um, speaking of this, my, my family's in California, you know, pretty close to you. And I'm out here in D.C. And... Uh, I don't know when it was like two weeks ago, my mom sent us something and she was like, Oh, has it come yet? And I'm like, no, but I feel like you've sent me stuff in the past and it takes anywhere from like one, two, sometimes three weeks. And then it shows up. <laughs> and I'm just like, I, <laughs> what use is that? You know, it's like, I feel like we're back in the 1800s or something. We could do a whole podcast about how much the United States Postal Service sucks. I mean, I, I'm, it's just so pathetic. I, I've been living half time in San Francisco and half time in LA, right? So I, mm-hmm. I signed up for the, I, I went on the USPS website before my last trip to LA. I was going to be down there for like a month. I went on the UPS, USPS website and I signed up for their premium mail forwarding service i was like "Ooh, premium <laughs> wow it's like an exclusive club holy shit this is great i'm gonna get myself some dates out of this you know and so i signed up for it and it the idea was that once a week so they hold your mail for you and then once a week they put it like in a priority mailbox and they ship it off to you to your new address mm-hmm. and i the only the only reason why I did it is because I was waiting on a driver's license to come in the mail from the DMV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I would like to have my driver's license. I signed up for the premium mail forwarding service. Predictably, after a week, nothing shows up in LA. After two weeks, nothing shows up in LA. After three mm-hmm. weeks, nothing shows up in LA. Now I'm back in San Francisco. Oh, no. And it's sent to L.A.? Like three and a half weeks later, finally, I hear the first piece of mail shows up in L.A. <laughs> and I'm back in San Francisco. Oh, my God. Ugh. Yeah, it's just like, it's just, th- thanks a lot. It's so bad. It's one thing for USPS to exist. It's another thing for them to say, well, it's not them, I guess, but whatever laws it is, it says, hey, you cannot deliver mail to people. So they have this monopoly yeah, right. How do FedEx and UPS get around that? I think because they don't put it in your mailbox. That's oh. why they only deliver packages and stuff. I think no one's really gotten into the letter business. I mean, I imagine there's not as much money to make there, but there's got to be some for reliability and stuff. But Yeah, I don't know. Let's let's jump into some of these uh, letters or emails or whatever. We got to do the teaser agenda of what we're going to show, what we're going to talk about today. Just like read the stuff at the top, sort of like the the on today's show. 
on today's show, we're going to go through a bunch of letters or emails. Then we're going to hopefully tackle question 16 in section 2 of the June 2007 LSAT, which is a logical reasoning question. And then after that, I'm going to leave and we're going to give you an interview that Nathan did with Nikki Black. And can you tell us a little bit about Nikki Black? Yeah, uh, she's a buddy of mine from Hastings. She is a very happy practicing immigration attorney. I decided to put her on the show as a counterpoint to all of my complaining about how much I hate law school and nobody should go. Law school worked out totally successfully for Nikki, and she's just smart, interesting young lawyer. So I thought I would share her with the world. Yeah, no, it's great. So if you're looking for a little motivation, hang on and listen to that interview at the end. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, uh, anything else did you want to add to that? No, I think agenda? I think we're good. Let's let's dive into the emails. Okay, so this first email is from Arnold who took the test and has uh, took the test twice actually in October and then again in December and has been listening to the podcast for some time and do you want to read this yeah. or should we just all right, it won't take that long. Hey, guys. Just thought I'd share with you that after taking your advice and deciding to take the exam again, I ended up getting a 174 on the December test. To think I was all but ready to apply with the 163 on the October test seems pretty ridiculous now. I thought you might like to know, as this decision quite literally probably changed the trajectory of the rest of my life. I don't think it literally changes the trajectory of your life because I don't think you literally have a trajectory of your life. <laughs> but anyway. Yes. Thus, I hope you continue to advise people on the side of try again. Also, I used to think that the myth about you always have to take a few points off your highest practice test when it comes to your expectations about the real one was true. I felt like there was no way there was any other way to explain the drop-off, and I had heard anecdotes of people feeling the same way I did. I'm happy to report that not only did I not score lower, but I actually scored a few points higher. Funnily enough, I think the weird pattern game 3, this is the December 2015 test, I think the weird pattern game 3 helped me quite a bit, because games were always my weak point. But because it was such an undiagrammable game, I went ahead and used common sense on it, saved a bunch of time, and killed the section. Pretty funny it worked out that way. Then, I just had the perfect storm of doing about as well as I've done on other sections and, as usual, and boom, 99th percentile. I think my highest full-length practice test ever was a 169 or a 170. So yeah, obviously people shouldn't come to expect dramatic increases on the day of the real test, but it is possible. In fact, I felt more focused while there on the real thing, and knew I just needed to give this test a little more of my all-out effort before being done with it for good, and that helped too. Anyway, sorry for the long email, blah, blah, blah. Uh, cheers, Arnold, which is a pseudonym. That's not his real name. Arnold. Cool. He raises the uh, third game in the December test. Yeah, there's a few different things here we can talk about. We could start with, with that. Um, I'm sorry. I just remembered that I didn't respond to your tweet. Oh, you don't need to respond to my tweets. It's fine. Hey, but everybody, I've been actually using Twitter these days. I'm at nfox, and it's it's actually me, and I actually look at it and respond to it and stuff. So um, at nfox is suddenly a really good way to get in touch with me, and I would love to hear your questions for the show, or you can just chat with me. That's fine, too. Yeah, I tweeted at Ben um, with my snap judgment the first time I looked at this game number three from June 2015, and... 
I said, which is exactly what I was predicting, I was going to say, once I heard people talking about it. It looks to me different, different, and also really easy. What do you think? I would say it's definitely different. I would say that because of that difference, it's not really easy in the time constraints. But fundamentally, I agree that it's an easy game to understand. There are some games that even after you understand them, uh, it can take time to sort of work through. I don't feel like this is one of those games. I can tell you my experience. I took the section timed, uh-huh. and I knew that the third game was weird. So um, I did the first game, felt really good about that. Did the second game, felt really good about that. Got to the third game and just went ahead and attempted it, even though I knew it was weird because I wanted to act like I had never, I didn't have that information. And to be honest, I was thrown off. I was like, this is just bizarre. And so I tried to do the first question and I kept wanting certain information about that first question that wasn't there. And so then I skipped to the first if question and I was still like, I'm not getting this. And so at that point, I decided to do the last game and found that to be uh, very straightforward. And then I came back to the to the third game that everyone was talking about. And I felt much more relaxed because I, I was under time constraints, but I had I had a, a decent amount of time and I had nothing else to worry about. And when I sat down and really started thinking about, okay, what's just like working through examples, what would happen in just a, a particular scenario? You know, not all scenarios, just one scenario. And then I did that a couple of times. It became really obvious what always is going to happen. Yeah. And pretty easy to start getting rid of answer choices. So I do feel like it is a very easy game, but the the weirdness threw me off. So I can sympathize with people that found it weird. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I can't sympathize. I am saying, though, that part of the skill in LSAT logic games is the willingness to read the rules, follow the rules, and improvise a solution to whatever system they give you. You know, they they don't have at the top of the page, hey, here's a sequencing game. Apply sequencing formula 3.b. You know, they don't, it's not like that. It's, it's a puzzle without a label on it, without a without a template that you're supposed to apply and you just have to read the rules, follow the rules and figure that shit out. And I, I just, when I saw that game, it seems to me that the only thing you don't know is the order in which people are going to pick. Right. Mm-hmm. But once, mm-hmm. once you know the order in which the people are going to pick, they always will choose their top choice. Yep. So, and there's only what, four people. Mm-hmm. Does that mean four factorial? What is it? Twenty-four different possible orders. Uh, yeah, that's right. Four times three times two. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's it's just there's just not that much complexity in the game, and and I think one thing you said is really interesting, which was just I, oh I don't remember how you how you put it, but you started just kind of playing with a couple scenarios, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the first thing I I glanced at that game and I said. Well, what happens if they pick in exactly this order, the order in which they're presented on the page? What if they pick in exactly that order? Yeah. And you know exactly, mm-hmm. then you can just see, bang, 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 here's what everybody gets. And yeah. then you could imagine, well, what happens if they pick in a slightly different order? Like, what if the second person starts first instead of the first person? 
mm-hmm. and then you just mm-hmm. run down the list. Bang, 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 bang. Well, that's already two out of the 24 possible scenarios. Yeah. And I, I just I just don't think it's, I don't know. I, I, it's one of these games where it looks weird and people freak out. But one of the biggest, most important skills that you can learn on the logic games is simply don't panic. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that if you do a lot of timed sections like virgin timed sections mm-hmm. where you've never seen the section before, but now you're going to just put 35 minutes on the clock and you're going to attempt it. I think if you just do that over and over and over and over, you'll realize that there are a lot of these so-called weird games, mm-hmm. right? I mean, aren't there like one or two per year that are like this? I feel like people are always telling me how there's like the games are how, ooh boy, this test just had such a strange and bizarre one. But to me, they're never strange and bizarre because they do that all the time. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure how many are like this one, but you can definitely go back and find weird games. I've, how frequently do they occur? My guess would be every three or four tests. Right. I was going to say once a year. Yeah. So no, I mean it. It's not similar. The the similarity is the dissimilarity, right? It's just that yeah they do mm-hmm. invent once a year in the in the underground lair of the LSAC, Lex Luthor <laughs> style, like invent a a one you know ooh, diabolical brand new game, and it's like and it yeah. appears on the test and people are like holy shit this does not fit into my preconceived notion of sequencing games versus grouping games versus these other categories of games that I learned how to do and mm-hmm. you know and then then they just totally melt down because they're like I don't know what this is and yeah it's like I I don't know I hear it I hear it too frequently I hear people you know people emailing me going like you are not going to believe when you see this game Holy shit. Wait till you see this game. This was just bizarre. And then I look at mm-hmm. it and I'm like, it's not any more bizarre than games that they put on the test like every single year. Yeah, or as bizarre as what you first felt like when you encountered an ordering game or something like that. What is going on here? Oh, oh, we're just trying to order these things. And you can just write these rules down like this. I mean, I think there are two ways to prepare for these games. I think one... Actually, I should say three. First, exactly like you said, do a lot of timed sections so you can get used to juggling the time and what it's like to take a little too long on some games and therefore not have enough time for a fourth game or whatever. Get used to how many games you can do. But two, I would say um, also get really good and fast at the games that are predictable because you can. I mean, that's kind of what I did on this test. I felt like the other games were really straightforward just went through them very quickly. Um, I think one of them was almost, the diagram was pretty much completed by the time I was done with the setup. And I was like, wow, this is going to go fast. Then the third thing would be to go back and, well, you, a lot of students would know which games to pick. But I've gone back and picked out a lot of random games from old tests because people don't have time to do everything, you know, and just say, hey, go ahead and try these. And... Uh, relish the weirdness and trying to solve a new problem that you haven't seen before. People should look forward to those things, even though they know they may not do so hot on them the first time they see them. Yeah. I mean, if you started now and you did 
I was going to say a section per day. Mm -hmm. But if you did, if you did even half of a section per day, if you started now and did half a section per day, you would do every single logic game before the June exam, wouldn't you? That'll work out just about right. Yeah. You know, you also want to make time for the other stuff. But yeah, I think, uh, what, how many exam? how many? If there are 77 prep tests. Yeah, plus the ABC, right? So you have about 80, 80 times four. So what is that, 320? Yeah. I mean, if you did a section a day, it's 80, 80 days, right? If you do half a section a day, it's 160 yeah. days. We got about half a year until mm-hmm. the June test. Maybe not quite that, but... My point is, and and I'm I'm actually not saying you should go do every, literally every single game. I don't think you need to do every single game. But Mm -hmm. the best thing to do with the games, I think, is to just expose yourself to it all the time and just just chip away at it, just do a little bit every day. But, I mean, I think if someone had, had done all of the last, let's say, you know, 30 or 40 prep tests... Mm-hmm. I don't think they would have been surprised by game three on the December 2015 test. I mean, they would have never seen anything exactly like that before, but they would also mm-hmm. have seen a ton of other one-off games in all of their prep that they've done. And they wouldn't be shocked by it. They would be like, oh yeah, I have seen other weird games in the past. You know, one thing that students do is that they they convince themselves that it's the experimental section. <laughs> yeah, 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 that <laughs> is like- coming. Oh, this is bizarre. I've never seen anything like this before. Oh, this has got to be the experimental section. No, no, it doesn't. No, (laughs) it does not. (laughs) Arnold has a couple other points here that I think were were interesting. Um, Sure. Yeah. So uh, the the reason why I wanted to put this on the agenda in the first place is just he, he got his 163 in October, you know, and he he wasn't sure whether he should take it again and he emailed us and we advised him to, to take it again. We, we asked him, Hey, what were your practice test scores? And he said that his practice test scores were a few points higher than his 163. And we said, in that case, it's a no brainer that you should take it again. I think we both said that. Right. And he did take it again. And then he ends up not only with his 166 or 167 or whatever his practice test scores were at that time, but he ends up with his life-changing 174. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. (laughs) Right? The difference between 163 and 174 is a, a, oh my God, not not the same applicant, right? No. no. In the eyes of law law schools, I mean, that is just not the same applicant. 163 is like not getting into a place like Berkeley, probably. Mm-hmm. But a mm-hmm. 174 is like probably getting scholarship money to a Berkeley. Yeah, and other places. And other places, yeah. So depending on what his grades are, we don't know. But um, yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> improving your LSAT score by 10 points is is not easy, but it is one of the easiest ways that you can completely change the course of your career. Mm-hmm. And particularly in the case like Arnold's, when you have practice test scores that indicate you're capable of better than the score that you actually have on record, it's just so obviously a case where you should retake the test. That that myth out there, the um, you should only take the LSAT once, law schools are going to look down on you if you take the LSAT multiple times. 
That is mm-hmm. a dangerous, dangerous myth. I mean, that is just such a bad piece of advice for people to have in their heads. Yeah. I mean, we don't know exactly what effect two scores have on your record, but the fact that they are going to almost certainly, I would say with a 95% certainty, um, just look at only the highest score, there's just really not much of a downside to retaking because even if you stay the same or drop, which I think you know a drop could maybe look subjectively bad, but uh, it's very likely they're still going to take the highest score, so you haven't really lost anything. But if you go up, it's a huge gain. Yeah. To be clear, we would never advise anyone to take the test until you're fully prepared. So it's sure. not like, oh, I'm just going to take it and see how I do because I can always take it again if I don't do well. That's mm-hmm. that is so stupid. I mean, you can Google, you can get the June 2000. If you want to know how you would do, get any LSAT practice test and time yourself, and that's how you would do. So it's I I get it's kind of infuriating when I hear people say like, oh, I just took it to see how I would score. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, you didn't have to pay 175 dollars for that. And you didn't have yeah. to put that on your permanent record. And you didn't have to waste mm-hmm. one of your three attempts. You could have just taken a practice test, right? Yeah. So we're not saying take the test before you're prepared. But we are saying that if you're prepared and you take the test and you don't have your best day on the day of the test, then it's just so obvious um, that you need to retake. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, Arnold here has, has definitely changed his life. By the way, um, yeah. I do want to... I know we like to go on tangents here, but talking a little bit about practice test scores and volatility. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people uh, should and do take several practice tests leading up to the actual exam. And uh, they should be taking the the most recent ones to get a good sense of where they're at. And anyone who's done this will know that their scores go up and down a few points, um, sometimes a lot when it's a bad day. But I want to talk about a little bit why those things go up and down because I think people too quickly dismiss the scores that go down because it's an off day or whatever or um, too quickly accept a higher score as a sort of a validation of where you know they're at. And I think what people have to realize is that if your scores are going from, say, 155 to 157 to 159 and 157 or you know somewhere in that range and your, your average is around a 157, the reality is that on the days that you're doing better, I think um, there's certainly a reasonable possibility that you're getting some questions or you're almost certainly getting some questions right that you don't fully understand And yet you're sort of walking away from that and saying, you know, I got it right, so this affirms that I understand it. And one thing that I do when I'm done with the test and the test that I just took yesterday, test 77, is that before I graded it, I went back to about six or seven questions in each of the logical reasoning sections and just looked at them again because I had been debating between two answer choices and I settled on one sort of based on some word or something and then moved on. And I would say of about five of those, when I went back to them, I'd said, yeah, no, the thought I had then was the same thought I have now. This is right. And one or two of them, I thought, hmm, I 
I, I need to think about this a little bit more. And I think that so many people, you know, take questions and they are debating between answers and then they move on and they get it right. And that's an affirmation that they were thinking about it the right way. And it's no such thing. It's just you got it right. Was it right because of the right reason or was it right for some other reason? So we don't always know when we're starting out, but if you have any doubts, you should be investigating those questions. Whether it's right or wrong has less to do with your understanding of the situation. And I just, I, I guess that's part of the reason I think things go up and down is people get questions right, sometimes for the wrong reasons or they don't fully understand it. And then it goes back down when the, a question kind of tests the same idea, but in a, such a way that they now get it wrong. Yeah. Nobody's ever consistent until they reach like 175 or higher, right? I mean, the only way to get to have um, less variability in your scores is really to just like peg at the top of the scale. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the only time that you ever see anybody with like really consistent practice test scores is when they're really, really high. Yeah. Yeah. It, because if you're scoring even, you know, a solid score, 163 or something like that, which will get you into many schools and get you scholarship money all over the place. And, you know, 163 is awesome for a lot of people. Yeah. Anyone who's going to score 163 is also going to sometimes score 158 and is also going to score sometimes 167 or whatever. You've got, yeah. you're going to have this up, this plus and minus in it. And yeah, I think you're right. People, um, post hoc, it's really easy for people to say, oh, well, I went out last night and, oh, I have a cold, you know, mm -hmm. on their bad days. And then when they have one of their good days, they're like, well, yeah, that's my true ability. Mm -hmm. you know? And then they like they start expecting to get a 167 because that's their highest practice test score. Yeah. But, you know, the average of their practice test scores is a much better indicator of what they're going to get on the real thing, plus or minus whatever the the range is. And it's it, it, it really is. It's just you have not yet mastered these concepts. And mm -hmm. so sometimes you might get them right, but sometimes you might get them wrong, right? You're narrowing them down to 50-50s probably in a lot of cases, which is a good thing. It's great that you're narrowing it down to a 50-50 as long as that 50-50 includes the right answer. Um, yeah. But you narrow it down to a 50-50 and those, you know, they are, you could think of them as coin flips. And some days you're going to get a whole bunch of those coin flips in your favor. And some days you're going to get a whole bunch of those coin flips going against you. Yeah. And that's where that randomness, you know, that's where the variability comes from in your scores. It's, it's, it's probably less about your hangover and it's probably more about you just haven't yet quite mastered it. Yeah. Part of the reason I'm talking about this is I was just listening to a book this morning that's talking about these, uh, these studies of people who have sort of, have you heard the phrase like fixed mindset versus growth mindset? Yeah. So they were just talking about people who have a fixed mindset. For those listeners who haven't heard those terms before, uh, tend, these kind of people tend to believe that your intelligence and these various traits, uh, any traits really, cannot be improved. They can only be manifest. Whereas a growth mindset individual uh, is much more likely to believe that skills, intelligence, things like that can be improved uh, just takes practice or work or whatever. And, but the, the thing I think that's relevant for the LSAT is that, um, first of all, if you have a fixed mindset philosophy, if you believe that these things are sort of innate or fixed and they just have to be revealed, um, 
you're actually wrong. So that's that a lot of studies have shown that this is not true. And the 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 second thing though is that if you have this fixed mindset, they found that most people uh, in those situations when they do these MRI scans on them, if they're given a question, they pay attention only to the point where they are told whether it was right or wrong. Yeah. And they actually don't even care if they got it wrong. Like the, their their the mental activity in certain parts of their brain just still are shut off, even if it's like, well, you got it wrong. Whereas in a growth mindset person, when they tell them that they got it right or wrong, they their mind still remains active, hmm. even if they got it right. So there's still some investigation as to, oh, well, why you know why is that right or is there do I fully understand why the other thing is wrong or whatever? Hmm. And obviously these tests weren't doing anything with LSAT, but it's totally applicable because you can see it in class too, where people are like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I my rationale that I'm giving you is wrong, or <laughs> you're you're going against the rationale that I like I'm saying one thing, they're saying something else, and I'm telling them that that rationale is not correct. And they they sort of get flustered and they might say something like, well, I got, I got the right answer. Yeah. It's oh, sort God. of like this weird, like, okay, uh, well, we can move on now if you'd like, but I don't see how that's at all relevant to your future success. Yeah. It's, I, I think I've used this kind of metaphor before for a lot of students, the LSAT is like a slot machine where they're just like, take a test and see what score they got. Take another test and see what score they got. And you're talking about it on the level of individual questions, you know, do a question, see if I got it right. Do a yeah. question, see if I got it right. And it's like, um, okay, but that doesn't do anything. That's not, you're not learning there or you're, you're learning 5% as much as you would learn if you instead had the mindset of do a question. Sure. See if you got it right or not, but then figure out why, yeah. you know, talk about it. And you're talking about learning from the questions you got right. But I mean, even with questions that they got wrong, I sometimes see students just shut off, you yeah. know, like they'll, they'll, they'll chalk it up to like, well, that's a hard one. Or that's a, like a gotcha question. Yeah. Like, Oh, they got me on that. It's like, no, <laughs> okay. They're going to get you again. Yeah. Interesting. There's one more thing I wanted to point out in Arnold's email which was just this idea of uh, another dangerous myth that he points out, which I, I think is good that he pointed it out. So many people out there believe that you're going to score lower on your actual exam than you mm -hmm. did on your practice tests. Mm -hmm. And while it may be true that you probably shouldn't wager that you're going to score equal to your highest practice test score, I mean, you know, it would, your, your real test should be more like what your average was, but it's going to be your average plus or minus whatever your plus or minus is. Yeah. Anyway, point is there is no reason that you have to score lower on the actual exam than you did on all of your practice tests. Your actual exam is just one more prep test. It's just one more in what should be a long line of practice tests. And you should score right in line with whatever you've been scoring on your practice tests. And yes, some students do score higher. I think sometimes it's a little bit easier to focus on the actual day. And for some people you end up, I, I did achieve my highest score ever on my real exam. Hmm. 
And yeah. the same has happened here for Arnold. So, yeah, I, I just, I hate that idea. People go in with like this doomed preconception, you know, like, well, my practice test scores were okay, but, you know, everybody scores lower on the actual test. No, they don't. Yeah, so I, I have I have two thoughts on this actual point of what you're going to get on test day. And the first one is an argument for what you're saying, and that is that I think there's a huge confirmation bias in the sense that people who do worse on test day remember it very acutely, whereas those who do the same or better, um, you know, they're not out there bemoaning it so much. Um, certainly people who do better, I think, are are going to remember that. But if you do about the same, you're not saying anything. And so I think there's a lot more focus on people who drop, right? Those are the ones who are going out seeking more help and talking about this because they, things went down or they didn't go as they had expected. Yeah, I always I would call that selection bias. Oh, yeah, I was thinking confirmation just because it's sort of like people expect that and then that's what right. they remember. There's both. I, I think there's both. If yeah. you if you expect it and then you score lower, then yeah, that's definitely and then you'll remember it. That's definitely confirmation bias. Oh, I was even thinking like a third party that you you sort of expect this, like this myth is out there, and then you go and you you oh go you talk online. to people, you hear, you read about it, whatever. Yeah, and then so okay, right? So that is confirmation bias, and then it's also selection bias because people who score lower feel wronged, <laughs> and they feel yeah. like it's a tragic story. Mm-hmm. you know, or they just are out and out lying yeah. <laughs> or, or lying to themselves, right? Like, oh, they gave themselves a few extra minutes once in a while on the practice test. Ooh. You know, they didn't really score it quite strictly. Dude, that's a big thing. I didn't bother to use a bubble sheet. Yeah. While I was taking my practice test because, you know, <laughs> you know, reasons. I don't know. Well, yeah, a lot of people think it's trivial. Like I can bubble in bubbles. And I'm like, yeah, and it takes a minute and a half. I don't need to practice with a practice with a bubble sheet. Ah, come on. I don't need to, you know, or like, well, I, yeah, I paused in the middle of the section so that I could go to the bathroom. Yeah. But I restarted the timer. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and then they score lower on their actual test. And then, but the, what we were talking about is then they go tell the world about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the selection bias. It's like no one ever talks about it when they take practice tests and then they go score the same score on the real thing. Nobody talks about that. Yeah. So, yeah, you hear the horror stories of people who scored lower, but that doesn't mean that you have to score lower. So that is my argument for why what you're saying is correct, that the, most likely people end up getting the score that they were getting or the, the average, you know, around the average of their last few tests. But I also want to admit here that I, I actually don't really know. Like I haven't ever sat down and said, okay, let's get the data for the last and be very precise about this, right? Let's take the last three official tests or last five official tests, whatever sort of study you want to do, and then go see, you know, um, with a random group of people or at least people from class, what they end up getting, partly because it depends on them reporting their score back to me, which doesn't always happen. I mean, I could try to be more vigilant about it, but I would be curious if there is over, you know, a large group of people, a trend towards the middle, a trend a little bit lower because it's test day or a little bit up because people are focused and it's test day. I don't know. I could see it uh, cutting a little bit in either direction. If I had to make a bet, a bet, I'd go with the middle, the average, the base rate, if you will. But um, I don't know for sure. 
I don't know for sure either. I that sounds like a lot of work to get that data. If a, <laughs> That's I just prefer, the kind of thing you do, right, Nathan? You just like, oh, this is a puzzle that needs to be solved. I prefer to just speculate and use the powers of my mind to figure out what probably is true and then say that that's the truth. If I had to make a bet, I would go with the base rate for sure. Uh, as would I. And if any listeners um, actually have that data somewhere, if you have that study somewhere, please, yeah, let us let us know. Help uh, at thinkinglsat.com. And we would love to uh, hear that and repeat it on the show and have actual data instead of just our own bullshit. I don't think it's total uh, bullshit, as you put it, but it is it would be interesting to actually see if there's a slight, uh, you know, statistically significant change in one direction or the other. Absolutely. It has to be very controlled, though. That would that's yeah, that's the tough thing is that you would actually need. I think you can't rely on self-reported scores at all in that in that case. I mean, That's I think tough. I actually think you have to you have to um, administer the tests yourself um, mm. in like the classroom, and you have to actually like collect the score sheets. Yeah, and you have to yeah. score, you have to score it yourself. You have to you know um, because any type of letting people, I mean, you got to strictly proctor it. You know, mm-hmm. For I sure. I had a I did a I did a test. Um, in class the other day, <laughs> do, do you ever have this where the students are like not following your proctoring instructions? Where they keep writing answers after or what? Oh yeah, like this one dude was just was just like working on section one during section two and working on Whoa. section two during the break. And... I don't think I usually have that. I usually have people who are always bubbling stuff in after it's like, stop, put your pencils down. And it's so obvious because it's like, those are the three people who are still writing where everyone else is looking up. I want one time to just go grab someone's score sheet and dramatically rip it up right in front of them, right in their face. <laughs> I'm sure that would endear them to you. <laughs> it would be so awesome. though. It would be so fun. And then I'd just be like, that could happen to you. That could happen to you. <laughs> it... <laughs> All right. Um, oh, that's good. Should we move on? Anything more for uh, Arnold? No, I think that's it. I think Arnold got more than his money's worth on that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll expect a donation soon, Arnold. So. <laughs> How's that going? Are we still looking at our one donation that we uh, received? Yeah, so far we have uh, one donation. Um, I mean, thankfully it was for $5,000, so that's pretty cool. Um <laughs> Yeah. That was that was a bad joke. It was five dollars actually, but thank you. I will promise the thinking LSAT nation that any money that I get from the donation button, I will spend on beer. I'm just putting that out there, <laughs> and I can guarantee you that I will not. So <laughs> half of it will go toward Ben bettering himself, and half of it will go to me destroying my liver. That'll be the. <laughs> that's how that money is going to be spent. Yeah, so the 250 yeah. I, I have to still send you half of that, so don't worry, I will. I, I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to shortchange you there. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, so Hannah had a question about an application fee waiver. Her story is sort of funny. She, let's see here. She's listened regularly since September. Thank you, Hannah. And she started with a 153, and after five months, she's now 
Oh, she took the December test and got a 163, so that's 10 points up. Nice. Um, and she said, this is the same as my practice test average, so it wasn't too surprising. Confirmation bias, I will just focus on this forever. Yeah, that solves it right there. That's all yeah. we need. One that's data all point. we need. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, let's see. Uh, now that she's taken a test, she has a question about application fee waivers. This is the email that she got. It said that it invites her to apply, but they won't be waiving her application fee. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I guess this was from Georgetown. Yeah. She says that this is a reach school for her, which makes sense because she has a 163. Uh, I feel that it's a strange marketing strategy. I feel like it's strange too. Please, please apply, but by the way, we won't be waiving your application fee. Yeah, and so Hannah was specifically asking like what this means. Um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, does it mean that they really want her to apply? Does it mean that they want her to apply, but she is or is not going to be admitted? That's what she she says. Have either, either of you had students who have received similar emails? Do you know if they ended up getting accepted, waitlisted, or rejected? Yeah, that's it. So my initial reaction is, no, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't have enough. Uh, experience with people specifically getting this kind of email and then what happened to them. I, I've never even heard of it before. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, the short answer is it doesn't mean anything. I think we both had the same reaction to this, which was, well, probably what it is, is Georgetown has been receiving too many requests for fee waivers. Yeah. Because of us or you know because of other LSAT teachers it's out there now that some schools will give you fee waivers if you ask so why not ask so why not ask yeah and um, so now Georgetown is actually putting it in their marketing emails like hey don't ask yeah I would probably go Andy Dufresne on it and just still ask (laughs) Um, do you know who Andy Dufresne is Uh, no sorry I actually missed that reference Andy Dufresne is um, the Tim Robbins character in um, Shawshank Redemption. Oh. Which is a just awesome, awesome movie. It's If you've never seen Shawshank Redemption, you should definitely check that out. It's just such a great, great movie. Heartwarming and awesome story. And everything about Shawshank Redemption is just delightful. So, so it's been a long time since I've seen it, but that's the guy who was good at accounting, right? He was the main character. He was an accountant, yes. Yeah. Yes, falsely imprisoned accountant. Yes. Yeah. And Morgan Freeman's in it. And yeah. it's just a just a beautiful movie. Um but Andy Dufresne, he was sending email he was not emails, he was sending letters. <laughs> he was in prison. He was sending letters. Yeah. He was a he was working in the prison library and he kept sending letters to the state uh, asking for funding for the prison library. Oh yeah, yeah. And they had and all those letters. He sent he sent like one letter every week for like twelve years. Mm-hmm. And they finally responded with some money for the mm-hmm. library yeah. and stop asking. <laughs> and so then Andy started sending two letters every week. <laughs> so if I saw this, if I saw the marketing email that said, hey, we would love it if you applied, but don't ask us for a fee waiver. I would probably say like, hey, I know you said not to ask, but... <laughs> um, you know, and then all you need is like a reason, right? Yeah, yeah. Any reason. Um, I know you said not to ask, but 
I'm on a budget. So if there's any kind of a program where you could waive my application fee, I would, I'd love to apply to Georgetown, but you're, you're my top pick. You're my top pick, but I'm a teacher and I'm poor. Yeah. And I just don't have the $175. You know, I, the worst and they're going to say. I just say, gave my last dollar to the thinking else that. Yeah, I just donated $175 <laughs> to Nathan killing himself via alcohol. And I, so therefore, I think you should give me a free application to Georgetown. Yeah. I mean, as long as you, as long as you're polite, they're, they're, ne- I, it's not like they're going to say, no, and by the way, never mind, don't even apply to our school. Yeah. <laughs> the ya. only time they're ever going to do that is if you're a major dick. So anyway, I don't think this email means anything to Hannah. I don't, I, they, they have certainly not decided, Hannah, whether they're going to admit you or not in advance. They are trying to get as many applications in the door as they, as they possibly can. And you are reading way, way too much into this marketing email that they sent you. Until you apply, they don't know anything about you, and they have certainly not pre-determined whether or not you're going to get in. Do they not know your LSAT score? They would know well, that. Well, they probably do have your LSAT score. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, and, and they're not going to send this to you unless there is some chance, right, that they're that you're going to get in. Yeah, yeah. Also, they don't know if this is your final LSAT score. Also, I'm not sure if they know your GPA or not. Mm-hmm. Also, they certainly haven't read your personal statement. I did think that they could be saying, hey, anyone below a certain LSAT score and everyone below that score we're going to send this to because we just – they're but like they might not send this to people who have really high LSAT scores if they know them because they might actually want to waive their application fee, right? <sighs> It sure, yeah, that's true. If anybody got a marketing email from Georgetown that did not have this in the boilerplate, we would love to hear about it. Yeah, but I, I still, you know, the thing that's most amusing to me about this whole thing, well, other than Georgetown just being kind of rude in their marketing email, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> or not, I'm sure they weren't being rude, but it is kind of like off-putting, you know, to, yeah, yeah. to a potential candidate. I thought that was amusing, but I also thought that Hannah, just in that she's so representative of all LSAT students in like wanting to read the tea leaves, Mm -hmm. you don't know until you apply and nobody knows until you actually apply. Yeah. And sometimes people who seem like they're over-credentialed don't get in. And -hmm. sometimes people who seem like they're under-credentialed do get in. Yeah. And there's just who knows there's random shit at play and so i i would certainly not read in read anything into this email that they sent you in advance before you've ever even applied yeah okay next one yeah next one is uh sydney and sydney wants to know has she wants a little information about a study schedule she said that she's been listening to the podcast since about october and find it really helpful so thank you Glad to yeah. hear that. All right. So she just took the December LSAT and she got a 161. She's planning to retake it in June to get a better score. Uh, she's trying to get into Georgetown, Bolt, and Harvard. Ooh. And um, great schools. Nothing wrong with that. Just uh, yeah, definitely need to get a higher score, I think, at least for Harvard. Um, and I'd really like to score in the 168 to 172 range to improve my application. 
She currently has a 3.9. Wow, that's great. From Berkeley. Again, great. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely willing to put in the work for a 170 to up my application. Sounds like she has a growth mindset. Good. I started out scoring a 141. Wow, she's come a long way from about July to December and raised it to the current score. Wow, cool. Okay, so she's working full-time. She's already taken a prep class. She um, uh, has all the materials from it, and she's curious how to create a self-led study schedule from what you've said on the podcast before. I'm more in the range that tutoring would help, but it's incredibly difficult for her to afford it. Okay, so anyways, what suggestions do we have for her to create an affordable study schedule that's self-led? I think study schedules are dramatically overrated. Sure. And I also think that they're like one size fits all kind of bullshit. Sure. Without knowing what her strengths and weaknesses are, there's no way I would be able to like tell her specifically what to study. Yeah. And when you buy these, when you buy these off the shelf study schedules, I just don't, it's different people need to work on different shit. So I don't, I don't know how, I don't know what good that would be. Yeah. They also make, I mean, I don't, I haven't really looked at any of them recently, but I'm assuming that there's assumptions about how much you can do each day and that's different for everyone. So totally. I mean, different people have different amounts of time and different people have different amounts of patience and ability to sit and study and weaknesses. Like you really should be zeroing in on what you suck at. Yeah, absolutely. I want to just put a note in here that we've talked about study schedules, I think, many times on the show before. Mm -hmm. And I really would encourage people to go back and listen to our back catalog. I mean, if you like the show, there are, I mean, I don't know why you would, but if you like our stuff, (laughs) there are now, you know, coming up on a hundred hours worth of back catalog to listen to. And so, um, We've covered many of these topics in the past. The one thing that I always say when people ask this question is simply do a little bit every single day. Yeah. And and work on your weaknesses. So um, whatever your worst section is now, I think you need to emphasize that. I wouldn't mm-hmm. neglect any of the tests. I would continue doing full tests, like one one section at a time and working your way through full tests. But I would, if, if you find out like many students do that games is your weakest section, then you need to really hammer on the games. Yeah. And so do an extra section of games alongside your continuing to do full tests one section at a time, just throw in extra sections of games, you know? And, and so it's like the daily practice again, that I recommend this for everyone, including the students that are in my classroom class, my private students, my online students, everyone is just crack open the book, put 35 minutes on the clock, do a section of games or do a section of whatever. Then when time's up, review your mistakes, thoroughly review your mistakes. Some of them you're not going to be able to figure out by yourself or you're not going to be sure you figured them out by yourself or you think there must be some faster, better solution. Those ones you need to put on a list and you need to get yourself either a study partner or a tutor. Since Sydney has studied for so long, and since she is already, you know, 
um, scoring pretty well with her 161 on record, which, you know, congratulations on that, by the way, 20 points improvement already. My guess would be that she might be kind of hitting a brick wall on self-studying and that a tutor, even like a single tutoring session might be able to help a lot because whatever mistakes she's making at this point are, are really, you know, she's got a good foundation in the test, but there's some cracks in that foundation. And so I would, you know, an hour or two with a, with a tutor, an expert tutor, I I think could make a huge difference. Yeah. And, and like make the rest of her self-study more efficient. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think maybe people don't understand that that's how that's really what tutoring is about is like finding somebody who can keep you from banging your head against the wall on the same issue Mm -hmm. and and then accelerate the learning that's going to come from your own self-study. Yeah, because it ultimately it really is about self-study, isn't it? Yeah, because even if you're in a class or working with a tutor, you've got to sit down put in the time and think about what you're doing. I mean, the students who work with me on a weekly basis, they, they put in, they put in five to 10 hours of prep for every hour they spend with me Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. I mean, they have to, the ultimately it's about you and your own understanding of the test. You've got to do practice tests. You've got to review them. You've got to make mistakes. You've got to figure out why you're making those mistakes. And then some of them, you're not going to be comfortable with, and those ones you just put on a list and you bring them to me or you bring them to Ben. Mm-hmm. If Sydney's talking about budget issues, I would recommend again, like get a study partner and do that mm-hmm. same thing, but with a study partner or with two study partners. But beyond that, I don't know that a schedule is really helpful. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, studying a little bit every day, I even sometimes say 15 minutes. I know you said 35 minutes, and I actually think that's great because you can just do the section and then review it. But even if you're looking at a day and you say, I don't have 35 minutes today, just do something for 15 minutes. Do a game or a few logical reasoning questions so that you're doing something every day. And this is not just crazy talk. Um, I could be uh, going out there and just looking for studies that confirm what I'm thinking. (laughs) But I was just reading another study two days ago about the best study methods. It said that hands down uh, for – it depends on the kind of test, but the different tests that they were or the kind of knowledge you're trying to acquire. But for the skills based stuff that they were talking about, um, they said that cramming just hands down doesn't work as well. And the LSAT is definitely on the side of a skills based test. And so it makes sense to be doing stuff over time. It's not like you can go and throw the football a hundred times on Friday and then be like, okay, now I'm ready for the game on Saturday. You right. gotta do it over the week. And so I can, I think it's very, very valuable to do a little bit each day, even if that's less than 35 minutes. Granted, you can't do that forever, but you know, on some days you're going to be able to do more. And then the other thing I would add is that, like you said, as long as you're taking a full length practice test, if you're trying to figure out how often to take one, maybe once a week or something like that, then you are going to check in with all of the, of the sections and so you won't necessarily lose sight of anything that you may be weak on. Sometimes I think people maybe just do games forever and then they're like, oh, totally forgot about the other sections or they just don't ever develop them. Yeah. But as long as you're taking a full-length test every week, 
then you're going to be in touch with those. And you and, mean by a full length test, you you don't necessarily mean sit down and do a whole test all at once. You mean a test worth of sections, right? Yeah, it really depends on where you're at. If If you're scoring very high, then taking a full length test once a week, assuming you can find the two and a half hour block, makes a lot of sense because you're not going to get that many wrong. And so reviewing the whole test isn't going to take you so long. And so you can yeah. actually do it. If you're very, if you're not doing very well on the test, then absolutely, like you're saying, break it up into four separate sections, do one, review the heck out of that before you go on to the next one, because otherwise you're just going to overwhelm yourself with a ton of questions that you need to review and you'll never review them. So it really depends on where you're at. And even if you're scoring high, maybe you don't have that two and a half hour block and all you can ever do is fit in a 35 minute section at night. Fine. I don't think that's ideal because like we were t- saying earlier, you know, you do want to get some experience doing these sections back to back and not taking a break. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, get you need to experience that. Uh, but do you need to do that for your your whole prep time? No, especially not in her case. She's looking for towards June. She's got months ahead of her. So... Um, but yeah, I think you do need to fit that in sometime. Cool. Um, so the, our universal study schedule is just like do a little bit every day. I mean, the, the nice thing about that as well is that, you know, you do have diminishing returns when you sit for four hours and try to study the LSAT, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. in hour number four, I mean, maybe half as much is going in <laughs> as was going in at the beginning. Yeah. So if you if you do that little bit every day, you know, that's the high you're getting the highest value hour. Yeah. Right. I mean, one hour every day, you're going to learn a lot more than seven hours on Saturday. Yes, for sure. Yeah. OK, well, good luck, Sydney. Um, please let us know if you have any follow ups or anything on that. Cool. So the next one is an email from Oscar. I guess you and Oscar were exchanging emails, right? So maybe I should let you. Yeah. So um, I just I, I I'm not sure how much we have to say about this. I just wanted to to read it to the audience. Um, Oscar, in he listened to our podcast about um, accommodations, or we've talked about accommodations multiple times recently. But Oscar yeah. writes, "I got an LSAT accommodation, time and a half, and non Scantron sheet." related to three retinal detachments in the past 15 years, two of those retinal detachments occurring within the past five years. As a result of the detachments, my vision is failing, where my left eye is negative 3.5 and my right eye is negative 9, whatever that means. I also have large floating spots when I read, and this causes me to read very slowly. The cataracts I've developed as a result of the gas infused in my eye to hold my retina together after the surgeries also so he got he got they they infused gas into his eyeballs to hold his retina together yeah that has caused him to have cataracts what are cataracts exactly i don't know that's those like um foggy spots that you see on people's eyes sometimes oh okay and they they can do surgery to remove cataracts but i think oh you're absolutely right i just searched it clouding of the normally clear lens of the eye Dude, I feel really bad for Oscar. This is... Fuck yeah. Dude, this is terrible. Um, Yeah. So these cataracts make reading difficult, slower, but not impossible. Applying for the accommodation was not easy, especially given the fact that the process was changed in early December and had to be in by December 31st for, I guess, for his February LSAT. Hmm. In order to get the accommodation, I had to show my complete medical records for the five eye surgeries and provide a letter from the doctor that stated what accommodation should be considered. 
I would rather have no accommodation and have 2020 vision instead. Wow. I'm surprised they required him to show so much. I mean, just the last eye surgery seems like enough. <laughs> yeah, one eye surgery. I mean, and one one eye exam that shows that your vision is this horrible where, you know, I mean. Yeah. So I don't know why I wanted to include this in the podcast. I wanted to include, I, I guess, you know, I feel bad about our, uh, my kind of ranting about the accommodation apocalypse. Sure. Mm-hmm. That I feel like is happening. Yeah. And I just wanted to point out that there are people out there, like, especially like Oscar, who I believe 100% should be accommodated. Yeah. There, there's no no doubt in my mind that f- fairness to me, you know, it's, a, it's a obviously subjective, but mm-hmm. fair, the world that I would like to live in is a world where Oscar would get extra time on the LSAT because he... They put gas inside of his eyeballs to keep his retina together. <laughs> and it's, yeah. you know, and, and he's just barely, it sounds like just barely able to um, see well enough to read. So, you know, Oscar doesn't have to fill out a Scantron. And that to me strikes me as perfectly fair. Yeah. And Oscar gets extra time. And that strikes me as perfectly fair. Yeah. So I am absolutely not complaining about accommodations in Oscar's case. And I really don't even know enough about it to know whether I should complain about accommodations in other cases. Sure. Sure. I agree. We're not experts in that. Not at all. I'm not at all an expert in any of that. So, you know, it's it's possible that I should just shut up, but (laughs) I, but I'm not going to, Um, but, but I, you know, the, the thing that, it's just it's it's striking to me when you compare this to the accommodation for people who oh i just have difficulty focusing mhm yeah and i think lsac is actually um making a distinction uh let me i just pulled this up on their website it says that um Documentation submitted in support of a request for testing accommodations may not be more than five years old for candidates seeking accommodation for mental or cognitive disabilities. So there's this there's this exception for mental or cognitive disabilities, which I think kind of recognizes the fact that these are more they're not as easy to pin down, right? Like Oscar's case is it's it's not a mental or cognitive disability it's a it's a physical disability and it's much more clear cut yes no see this is a problem this is not a problem and it definitely seems to be a problem um whereas a mental disability or a cognitive disability is where i think we get into these gray areas and you're saying wait are you just feeling like you're easily distracted which is a problem that a lot of people struggle with it's not just something you know that might be a disability it might just be being human and therefore you should not get accommodations or is this really a problem i mean that's something we don't know but i think it's fair to ask those questions because this can easily be abused right and i i think it is being abused in some cases partly because of us too maybe right (laughs) if you can get accommodations get them but i mean i'm just i'm I'm talking i'm two halves here i guess i'm 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 being two sides of this, but yeah, I am completely conflicted about it as well. I mean, I have no doubt that there are some people who have these attention 
um, disorders who, who really, really do struggle and that I, I, I could see how they, they could justifiably need accommodations in some cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I mean, to repeat something that we've talked about a lot, most of the people that I see that are getting these attention deficit related accommodations end up scoring significantly higher than the mean on the LSAT. Sure. Yeah. And like, and I mean, and, and so I'm talking about 165, 168, 172, 176. Mm -hmm. And when you're getting accommodated and then ending up with a 170 plus LSAT score. Yeah. That just to me does not feel like leveling the playing field. Yeah. Now, if Oscar who can't see, you know, I just I, I would be shocked if Oscar, I don't know Oscar at all, but this does not seem like the candidate to me who's going to end up scoring 175. Yeah, I'm in, and I'm also surprised they only gave him time and a half, but so he's getting the same accommodation time and a half. He's getting the same accommodation. He can't see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, yeah, like he's going to be there with like a magnifying glass or like whatever, like trying to trying to get, you know, trying to just under try, trying to just be able to see the words on the page yeah he's getting time and a half meanwhile some student with who has been diagnosed with add or adhd or whatever and and has done well in school like their entire life and but they're they've also had this diagnosis for their entire life and now they're getting the same time and a half that oscar's getting yeah and the the difference is that they're gonna so many so often they're gonna end up with these crazily high lsat scores yeah. Oh boy. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm again, I'm talking about things that I do not know about. I really don't want to offend anybody. It's just for the the majority of people out there who are not getting accommodated. This feels like special treatment that is I'm not sure fair for all of the other people who are not getting these accommodations. Yeah. No, I I agree with you and I think it's totally fair to raise the questions and if people have reasons to counter them and help us understand then we'll all come to a better understanding and I think that's totally valid. I think part of the reason it's hard to respond directly is because it's a lot of unknown, right? Especially yeah. individual cases. Can I, I mean Go ahead. Go ahead. The uh, last thing I was going to say is at least about this was that one of our listeners uh who I think um responded uh, to our previous podcast about this said that why not have accommodations for 40 minutes or 45 minutes, which I think makes a lot of sense because some things are like, okay, maybe you need an accommodation, but time and a half, now you're leapfrogging past thousands of people where really you should just be slightly accommodated for a more minor distraction because there's certainly different yeah. degrees of I think ADHD. That maybe just the administrative problem there of of trying to give every single candidate you know I mean because you're right if they could do this like a continuous kind of a scale that would be mm-hmm. that would be better yeah I, analogy I love analogies go for it did I tell you my story about flying through the tra- traveling through the Oakland airport recently no because I'm a good citizen. Wait, wait, what? Say that again. Sorry, can you start the story over again? I, didn't quite... <laughs> I think, because... I think the, the Skype kind of dropped there for a second. <laughs> because I'm a good citizen. Oh, okay. And, yeah, <laughs> and an environmentalist. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I took BART to the Oakland airport. 
Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, which is a pain in the ass, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I could have just driven. Sure. But I, but I took part and Mm -hmm. I really didn't do it for environmental purposes. I really did it because it's easier, but it it is still a pain in the ass. But anyways, I take Bart, I take Bart to the airport and I get to the security line and I'm, I'm in the security line and they have three separate lines. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. One is no line at all <clears throat> for the people who have the pre TSA thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I get that people who fly all the time, they know the drill. They're not going to hold anybody up. Yeah. Also, they go through this thing every day. Like they're not trying to bomb the airplane. <laughs> so those, those people go through their other separate line and they just breeze right through and like nobody waits for them. That's fine. Yeah. Except I think they go through the same metal detectors as everyone else. So, you know, they do go ahead of me in the metal detector. Yeah. Okay. But I, I kind of get that. But then they have two separate lines. Mm-hmm. And this one line is for um, people who have any disability or at, at all, like wheelchairs or whatever, go, go like straight through this other line. Sure. Which I totally get that. Mm-hmm. But also in this other line, is anyone traveling with a child in their arms? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, and I get it with infants. Okay. I, yeah. I would even grant that. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, no one forced you to have kids and no one forced you to take the kid on the airplane. Okay. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure why you're going ahead of me. But anyway, even if I was going to not be a dick about that and grant them like, oh, you got an infant. Okay. Life is hard for you. Okay. You get to go ahead of me. Fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm watching these families. There's like 10 people in a group mm-hmm. and they have a five-year-old with them. Uh, yeah. And the five-year-old jumps up into daddy's arms. Oh, Okay. And then the, all 10 of them breeze through the special family line, the special, the special line. Yeah. Yeah. This is what starts my blood boiling. Yeah. Meanwhile, my line is not moving. I mean, yeah. just not moving because so many people are going through the special line. Yeah. But this was the, the final straw was also guess who gets to use the special line. Anyone who used the Oakland Airport premium parking. Oh, yeah. They get to use the fucking special line. Yeah, that's messed up. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Suppose I was an environmentalist and I actually was using BART because I was trying to save the environment. Yeah. And anyone who uses the premium parking, anyone who drove their car and paid extra for the premium parking they get to also go through the TSA line ahead of me? Yeah. What? Yeah. What is that about? And I think what people don't get is that when you start treating so many different people special, yeah. guess what? Everyone else gets completely screwed. Yeah. And do you see where I'm going with the analogy, Ben? Yeah. You're yeah. a smart guy. Yeah. <laughs> this applies to swimming, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, maybe I've said enough. I, I probably have said enough. I, I did want you to know that um, in a study of uh, grocery line checkout or checkout lines, <laughs> nice people do not get frustrated on the basis of how long their line is. 
only on the basis of how or how slow their line is, only on the basis of how slow their line is relative to other lines. Of course, that that, that doesn't surprise me at all. And yeah, they, well, why don't they have one line at the grocery store? Why don't they rearrange it so that it's one line? Yeah, yeah, and multiple cashiers. Yeah, that would be good. That's what they do at Whole Foods. That's what they do at uh, what Best Buy. That's what they do all sorts of places. Yeah, that's true. But that's not what they do at Safeway. And so then you just end up being absolutely infuriated because you pick the line that doesn't move and the other lines are moving. <laughs> I guess they, they part of they did this study was because um, uh, grocery stores had – the number one complaint was how long it took to check out. And so they dropped that time from like five or ten minutes or something like that to like down to a minute. But people were still pissed and they were like, <laughs> what the heck, you know? You can get out in a minute. And people are like – well, they they figured out. Oh, it's just because the person next to me did it in thirty seconds. So, yeah, um, that was. I mean, I was I was not getting through the TSA in Oakland in a minute. I'll tell you that. <laughs> More like an hour. Um, but yeah, the people you know, and there it's actually imagine at the grocery store if there was a a line where people got to got, got to cut in front of you. Oh my goodness! Like, oh, oh you have a kid with you? Oh, right yeah. this way, sir. You come this yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, you you parked in the special parking lot because you paid for the special parking lot. Oh, you get to come up here. You get to go faster. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna have I I, I totally disagree with your um your family of ten and um the the five year old jumping into their arms. But I am gonna have to put in a little defense here for kids because when I have gone to anything, it doesn't matter what whether it's the grocery store or the airport, it it still surprises me how draining uh kids can be in terms of like you know are we there yet are we leaving um and if they don't keep moving at least for me because i have boys they start destroying things and so it (laughs) creates it does create a lot of tension that otherwise wouldn't be there and so i'm a little sympathetic to um sort of those sort of kid exceptions because you would like a lot of times being an outsider, because a lot of times I'm the outsider and my wife is the one who's, you know, taking care of them. I'm like, well, why don't you just, you know, take a deep breath and, you know, just say, hey, yeah, you can have this chocolate or whatever. But once when I take care of them and I'm like, this has been going on all day and I'm going to strangle someone, I can sort of sympathize. So, Oh, you don't have to tell me that kids are a pain in the ass. I mean, that's why I'm making the very rational choice to never have children. (laughs) So as much as I sympathize, I still don't um, want you to go ahead of me in line. Yeah. (laughs) Because those are your kids and you did not have to have those kids. No, did you have to bring them to the store and put them in my face. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. These were my choices. (laughs) Yeah. But I, I think they're good. Um, I'm glad I had kids. So they are, they can be trying, but, um, I, at least maybe I'm just convincing myself of this, but I really do think it's, it's, it's worth the, the effort. So that's what everyone says, despite the studies that pretty clearly show that kids do not objectively make you happier. Yeah, I'd ha- I have to, gonna have to go against that. I think that it's one of those like pain gain things. I think it's Stockholm syndrome is what it is. What's that? That's where you fall in love with your captors. Fall in love with your captors. 
Hmm. Read up on Stockholm Syndrome. We'll talk about it next time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's probably that's probably what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think we're about out of time, huh, Ben? You said you had to go yeah, I'm around, sorry. around I now. This was great. Um, so from here, we will just transition into the interview that I did with Nikki Black. We have a couple more questions on the agenda, but we'll save those for next time. Uh, anything else you wanted to add, Ben? Yeah, just uh, email us your questions at help at thinkinglsat.com or tweet us at... At Infox, mm-hmm. at ThinkingLSAT, mm-hmm. at Strategy Prep. Yeah. Yep. Um, donations uh, only required <laughs> once every other day, so just go ahead and go to the website, <laughs> the Thinking LSAT, or no, thinkinglsat.com. Thinkinglsat.com, hit that donation button and buy me a beer. That would yep. be perfect. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll go buy some wheatgrass or something like that, something healthy. I thought you were going to say you are going to go buy some weed. Uh, again, that's oh, going to be me. Yeah. No, I, I should add that to my life experiences probably before I die. So maybe I'll... Ben, my friend, we can take care of that. That is, <laughs> that is doable. You can come to San Francisco or you can come to Los Angeles and we can definitely take care of that. Okay, so at that most awkward moment, um, I'm going to add in this last thing. I saw The Reverend. Ooh. It's very hard to watch, but it is very good. The Revenant? Yeah. Have you heard about this? With, I uh, have heard about it. Uh, yes. Did it just win some Golden Globes or something like that? It just came out, so I don't know if it's done that yet, but oh. okay. um, go see it. The Revenant. There's a movie yeah. recommendation from Ben. Excellent. I, can, I look forward, Ben, next time to hearing more. Um, studies. I really like it when you talk about all the studies that you read about. Yeah. And also uh, movie recommendations. Cool. Likewise. Cool. Uh, I think that's it for the show. So, yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, here's the interview with Nikki Black. Yes, you did. <laughs> yeah, isn't that crazy? It's been <laughs> really eight years. crazy. Yeah, we were in our one L year at Hastings, and you were in my section, and you ended up like dragging me through Hastings. I don't think I would have made it if it weren't for your help. So thank you. <laughs> wow, I don't think that that's true. You have amazing stamina for anything education related. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, endurance. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm, I want to talk to you on the podcast because you're a lawyer who is happy with her career and as much shit talking as I always do about the legal field. I mean, I'm always sort of like, Oh, but then there's my friend Nikki and she's so, you know, (laughs) I really can't be the only one. Um, there aren't, there aren't many. I mean, I don't know. Anyhow, (laughs) It's worked out perfectly well for you. So um, just like quick kind of brief bio sort of stuff. You did your undergrad at Michigan. You uh, studied communications. Yes. You have been a legal assistant, a legal clerk, a judicial extern. Mm -hmm. You were on the moot court competition team at Hastings. You have been an attorney and you are now, your title is associate attorney. Correct. Talk about your specialty a little bit so people know who you are, what you do. I work at a firm that practices exclusively immigration law, U.S. immigration law. It is primarily focused on helping uh, foreign investors and companies that are hiring foreign employees 
helping them get either temporary or permanent immigration status in the U.S. And I also do a little bit of family-based work, uh, meaning mostly that I help couples who are applying for immigration status through marriage or through a family relationship. So family, employment, and uh, investor immigration law. Yep. When did you first know you wanted to be a lawyer and was it always immigration law or did that come up later? Well, it was actually immigration before anything, probably. When I was in fifth grade, (laughs) I uh, was studying American history and social studies. And as part of a homework assignment, my teacher made my whole fifth grade class enter this essay contest that was put on by the American Immigration Council, which actually is still doing this essay contest today. So it's a contest for fifth graders, and uh, you have to write an essay on the topic, why I'm glad America is a nation of immigrants. Uh, You're supposed to write a one to two page essay on this topic. (laughs) And uh, when I was a fifth grader, I wrote a like 15 page sci-fi opus. (laughs) (laughs) basically covering this fictional universe in which the U.S. government passes a law that anyone with immigrant heritage has to be deported. And so you kind of see everyone in the U.S. being systematically deported from the United States. And I was disqualified from the competition. Because you didn't follow the directions. Yep, I was way over the word limit. Mm -hmm. But the contest coordinators, you know, called my mom and said we really loved this, you know, crazy thing. It's way outside of the parameters of this contest, but they really liked it. And so they ended up giving me an honorable mention. And basically on the strength of that one anecdote, I got my first job out of undergrad, which was as a legal assistant at an immigration law firm. Well, because this happened... You then what? What was the next step? So when I was an undergrad, I was a journalism major um, because I was always strong in writing. And so right before graduation, I started thinking like, man, I probably can't be a bartender forever. So I was looking for jobs and I don't know, it could be my memory, but I'm pretty sure the very first job I applied to happened to be at this immigration firm in Chicago. And all their ad said was basically, we're looking for new graduates who can write well. So I applied and went into the interview and told my uh, fifth grade anecdote. So I got a job there. And I worked as a legal assistant for this immigration firm for two years. Okay. So then was it any kind of a passion for immigration or what, what did you do next? So I never really had a passion for immigration. I mean, I grew up in Gulfport, Florida, which is a really small town on the western coast of Florida on the Gulf of Mexico. It's full of old people, and I don't think that I met a non-white person until, like, maybe my junior or senior year of high school. Okay. So it wasn't an issue that I was really aware of back then other than my, like, dabble in it in fifth grade. Yeah. Where did that Where did that come from, the dabble in it in fifth grade? Where did that come from? It was a homework assignment. But not specifically immigration. That was the topic, the essay topic that I had to write on. Wow. Okay. So I thought you had, I guess I had thought that you had the opus before that. Mm -mm. The instructions were for a two-page thing and you just wrote a 17-page whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And submitted it. That's about right. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I think they had to make their newsletter bigger that year to fit my whole essay in it. (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. It says a lot about you, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they'll put that on my tombstone for sure. And then the whole 17 pages. It strikes me as very lawyerly of you to immediately just um, 
respond in full to the <laughs> assignment. And the only part that you ignored was the restriction on how much you could say. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? <laughs> like saying as absolutely <laughs> most that you would possibly be allowed. Yeah. See, see, that's one spin on it. I also think that, you know, in working in immigration, as long as I have, I've come to like see the things that work and don't in terms of like legal writing and pleadings and briefings that a human actually has to read. Right. And so for that essay contest, the reason that despite flouting the rules, you know, they still wanted to print my essay and gave me like 50 bucks as an honorable mention was that it was different and it was something that connected on a human level instead of just like, you know, this is what it should be or this is what the laws have been. So I do think it says a lot about me as a lawyer in two ways. I am extremely verbose. And um, but also, you know, that I, I try to connect on a like story level right? with all of my immigration cases, whether they're business or family based or investor or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's interesting. The narrative is definitely important, right? You, you see yourself as a storyteller a bit. Oh, absolutely. Especially in my area of practice, because uh, in immigration law, your job is to is to write up a case and then send it to an immigration adjudicator. It's a government agency, you know, people who have like 10 minutes to read through an application and make a decision. And they see tens of thousands of applications a year in any given classification. And, you know, so you're kind of writing for a human, not like for a court or for a journal or as a homework assignment. So I have a whole bunch of boring questions, and I think I am going to ask you them. Okay. Because I think they'll get you talking about different aspects of your, like, whole path. I, I get okay. questions from um, students. Just They ask me all sorts of questions about law school and things that you do during law school. So, like, I want to talk about externship, clerk job, um, moot court, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah. Um, I know you personally, and so I want to get into an interesting, I think, aspect of your personality, which is – you are um, a vehement arguer. I don't think that you're like you said just a minute ago that you're super verbose. Uh -huh. I don't know that you're super verbose, but you you do like to represent positions um, strongly. <laughs> I don't know if I like it, but I just I hmm. it's I mean I do like it, but it's also like I don't think I could do it any other way. I really I know you don't believe this or or it's hard to perceive, but I really do try to be more diplomatic than I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. I, I understand that you're on your best behavior, but you <laughs> even on your best behavior, you don't not like to argue. <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. Okay. So, I would like to know how important you think that is. I mean, do do you know are there other successful lawyers who aren't that mm. way or do you think it's an important aspect of what you do? Hmm. So for me, you know, I think it reinforced the idea in my head when I started thinking about being a lawyer. You know, it was just one more thing like, hmm, should I be a lawyer? Can I write? Yes. Do I like to argue? Yes. It just seems like something that's folded into the profession. And I think that most, you know, areas of specialty in law tend to involve something adversarial. I mean, very rarely, except in maybe like a negotiations and settlement type practice, are you really truly trying to meet in the middle? And in my opinion, you know, being able to advocate a position strongly, so strongly that you feel it yourself, you can convince yourself of it, is a really important part of being a lawyer. I don't know that, you know, if you don't have that that same personality that you can't be successful as a lawyer, but I do think that it is a benefit and it's something that I see a lot in fellow attorneys. 
Can we talk about why you don't believe that the phrase agree to disagree should be allowed (laughs) in rational conversation? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I hate, I hate that phrase. I do. And I've never (laughs) liked it and I never will. Because I think if you agree to disagree, then you're both giving up on, you know, on, on your beliefs and what you think really is right or the best argument. So it's a relentless pursuit for compromise then. You're saying if we agree to disagree, then we haven't met. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't mean that you can't compromise. It's not that, you know, you and I can't agree to disagree because either you fold or I fold. But it's more like, can I convince you of an aspect of my position? And can you convince me of an aspect of yours? And can we find, you know, something in the middle? So we're not just saying, I don't agree. I don't agree. And then you just kind of say, agree to disagree and, you know, basically walk away from each other. But instead, you know, you can just agree to agree. You can find things that you agree on. So it's like, you're smart and I'm right. So (laughs) we're going to agree. Well, I mean, I want to say no. I know that no is the right answer. But yes, that's how I feel. (laughs) (laughs) You... uh were exposed to a law firm when you were in college. Mm-hmm. Did you know right away that the work of a lawyer was going to be a good fit for you? Did you like what you saw like in that first law firm job that you had? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that I am a huge people pleaser and I love to do things that I'm good at. You know, when I started at the firm, I was working with some of the partners and it was a good fit for me, I think, because immigration law is incredibly detailed and I'm very detailed and I got amazing feedback and was given more challenging work and that was really gratifying to me. So, you know, it it could have been the work itself, it could have been the validation that I felt from being good at the work, but it was pretty immediate that I knew I like the firm, I like what I'm doing. I want to keep doing this. That's so interesting because I mean I work with, you know, hundreds of people, you know, uh, that want to go to law school who work in law firms. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get so many just paralegals and legal assistants and different just the what I hear so much of is I hate my job. <laughs> oh my god, then why why would you want to go to law school? <laughs> that's my <laughs> that's my question. Like, are they looking at the attorneys and thinking that their lives are so great? I think that might be what they think. Huh. Or I think they might think it's going to be different when when I'm actually a lawyer in my firm or in uh-huh. my field or mm-hmm, whatever, mm-hmm. in my special area, uh-huh. then it's going to be different. Oh, wow. What do you think about that? I, uh, I mean, people come from a lot of different paths. And I, again, wouldn't say that it's not right for everyone, but I'd be surprised. I really would because in my very limited experience, being a legal assistant was fantastic. And being an attorney is just a little bit better than that, but it's pretty much the same. Interesting. All right. Obviously, you know, it's only your one experience, but. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I think as a legal assistant, you get a really good picture of doing the work of an attorney. Also, it's the work that attorneys either hate, or it's it's kind of the worst part of the job, or or a big bulk of the job, depending on how your firm is is set up. But you know, I think it's important to like that core work because everything else after that is just kind of marketing, networking, client relations, making excuses for your legal assistant who made a mistake. I mean, if you don't like your legal assistant work, then I don't know. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Um, law school, I experienced law school as being fairly highfalutin. Wait, how? Just in that it was a lot of um, uh, high rhetoric about policy. Oh, yes. Agree. Okay. Strongly agree. So how does that differ from like the work of what you actually do every day? It's so different and it's so nice that it's so different. I mean, I actually did not enjoy that aspect of law school at all. Uh, <laughs> the policy, yeah. the, 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 what I'm calling highfalutin policy discussions, yeah, like the constitutional the law stuff, you know, like the in a vacuum, yeah. Constitutional law, the theoretical arguments about how, you know, can you justify this law against your morality or society's morality or blah, 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 blah. I don't know. That's not my thing. I love to have my work grounded in a client, like a person that's calling me every day and asking me about their case and, you know, is like booking plane tickets based on what I'm doing and is, you know, putting all of their stuff in a pod and shipping it across the ocean and, you know, like that is gratifying. The theoretical stuff is just sort of like, you know, people like it, but it's not why I became a lawyer. What's your percentage of like just hours in the day? I mean, how how much are you talking to people face to face? How much are you on the phone? How much are you just uh, in your computer? Mm-hmm. So I I like to work on email. I mean, thing that you learn really quickly as a new attorney is the concept of CYA, cover your ass. Uh, <laughs> a lot of being an attorney is telling clients things like, "This is the law." You know, these are the risks, but it's a gray area. There's no way that I can tell you for sure, but here are the pros and cons that I can foresee in your particular scenario, and now it's up to you to make the choice. So, I mean, it sounds kind of cold, but having that stuff in writing is really important. So I do a lot of my work over email. So is that just boilerplate? I am not really telling you for sure. Oh, my God, yes. I mean, ask any client who's ever ever hired an attorney in any specialization, what the most annoying thing about their lawyer is. They're going to tell you two things. One, they never respond as quickly as you want. You know, they're slow. And two, that they never give you a straight answer. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> but that's because there isn't one. I mean, the better lawyer you are, the you know, the more that you can see there's a million gray areas. You can tell people based on your experience, but I can't guarantee anything for anyone. And actually, disclaimer, the state bar prohibits you from making any guarantees. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's also the correct answer to every single law school question, right? It's, it just, yeah. it depends. Yeah. yeah. And you have to say what it depends on and you have to make arguments both ways. And right. that's, that's your job. So if you're communicating that clearly to your client at the same time, that they know that that's what they're getting. Yeah, exactly. Because with clients, I mean, do you ever wink at them? Like to <laughs> tell them, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yes. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because my job is not to, te- to tell them what to do, or at least that's not how I see my job. I can't make decisions for clients, and I have to accept my clients' decisions even when I think they're wrong. I mean, sometimes I could tell I've – had- I've been in this situation before, you know. This is your case. These are the best facts that I can call out of the story you've given me. This is the law. You have a, a based on my best estimation a thirty percent chance of success, you mm-hmm. know, which is pretty small. But sometimes people, especially in my field, are extremely motivated or sometimes even desperate, and they try it and it works. So I have to let them make those decisions, even though they wouldn't be mine. And once they decide, I do the best I can for them. Right, right. 
so you just tell them both sides essentially and yeah yeah pretty much i mean yeah i just give them the facts and answer their questions the best i can then after that you know you just fight really hard no matter what they choose that's kind of goes back to the agree to disagree sometimes i don't even get to pick my opinion until my client tells me what it is and then i just have to fight really hard for it yeah, that that's an interesting concept. I think it actually has LSAT application. Um, I talk about it a lot with my LSAT students. Just your job is as a lawyer, your job is to analyze the argument and to to figure out what what they're trying to prove. What you know, what's their desired outcome here, and what evidence and law do they have on their side? Mm-hmm. So what's just what's the situation? What's their desired outcome? Right. And then to know the strengths and weaknesses because you don't actually know which argument you have to make, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because you don't know whose team you're on always. Mm-hmm. You don't know which side they want to go on. So you just tell them, well, here's the one case and here's the other case. Right, exactly. And then your client says, I want to go for this. And then all of a sudden, at least for me, your brain switches. And then it's, this is the answer. And it's always been the answer. And it's the only answer. You, um, you did no LSAT prep. I had a book that I got from Borders that had like some fake questions in it, like practice questions. Okay. And you did that, uh, I think pretty early in college, right? Didn't you say you took the LSAT as a sophomore or something? I took it in my early junior year. Okay. Yeah, so I think I got the book when I was a sophomore, but I was a little bit – I was working full-time when I was in college, and I wasn't really sure that I wanted to be a lawyer. That didn't happen until I started working, which was after college. So I took the LSAT basically because my mom wanted me to, and I wasn't really focused on it at all. Okay, so with minimal prep, you took the LSAT. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say your score? Uh, sure. I got a 165. 165 with minimal prep is uh, a strong to quite strong um, result. That's a really good starting spot. I Yeah, I mean, I think you could have probably gotten quite a bit higher on that if you would have <laughs> actually prepared for the test. But that's still pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. How did you find law school applications? How many schools did you apply to? I think four. Okay. And I really chose them kind of at random. I was dating a guy who went to Cornell, so I applied to Cornell. I was living in Chicago, but pretty ready to leave. And I I grew up in Florida and missed a warmer climate. So when I was visiting the guy I was dating at Cornell, I was talking to one of his classmates. They were freshmen in law school at the time. And this classmate was telling me, oh, I went to visit UC Hastings. It's in San Francisco. And, you know, the city is really nice. And I, I, I didn't know anything about UC Hastings other than that. But I applied. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and where else did you apply? And how did you ultimately pick Hastings? Okay, so Cornell Hastings, Miami, University of Miami. I got in okay. there as well. Oh, um, Fordham in New York City. Yeah. I was waitlisted there. Waitlisted and then no? Or waitlisted and you just decided Hastings before? I just decided Hastings before. So I don't, I don't know. I guess I must have gotten an answer from them, but I can't remember now what it was. Didn't get into Cornell, got into Hastings, got into Miami, waitlisted at Fordham. Okay. And then did you visit Hastings before enrolling? <laughs> no. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> I had never been to San Francisco before. I'd never been to California before. Wow. <laughs> uh, that's so amazing because Hastings is not on the postcards of San Francisco and the rice and <laughs> box. 
Hastings is not pictured. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and then you moved straight into the tower yeah. at 100 McAllister Street. Mm-hmm. And you lived there for two and a half years. Holy shit. Wow. Okay. <laughs> How was that? The tower? Yeah. It was great. I really, really liked it. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. There were a lot of people, you know, a lot of freshmen in law school living in it. Um, and I didn't really have the typical college experience. So it was a little bit like how I imagined that would be. You know, it's, it was, it seemed like a lot of young kids. I was 24 at the time. You know, a lot of people that were new to the city and a lot of people who were stressed out with first year of law school too. So I met some nice people. I, I arrived in San Francisco with two suitcases and no furniture. So having the tiny tower studio kind of worked out that way too. Perfect. And the neighborhood? Well, uh, you know, I it's funny cuz back then, you know, I was pretty young, had no money, had lived in like a crappy neighborhood in Chicago and a crappy neighborhood in Ann Arbor and it didn't seem that bad, but now I think going back, I I probably am a little softer than I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we do that as we get a little bit older. Yeah. That is one thing that I think people don't – I've talked to people before. I mean, you you were prepared, I think, from your previous urban living. Mm-hmm. But if you have never been in an urban environment before, Hastings is super urban. Yes. Yeah, it definitely is. But then again, I mean, San Francisco is so amazing and it's so easy to get out of the Tenderloin. The subway stop is right there. And so I, you know, I spent a lot of time in the mission and a lot of time in other places and it didn't feel like I was trapped in this seedy, scary neighborhood. You were working in law school, huh? You were waiting tables, at least for part of it? Yeah, yeah. You're not supposed to do that, right? (laughs) They don't recommend it. (laughs) But for me, I mean, it's just kind of my personality. I think when I'm busy, I tend to do better in school. I've never been a big school person, but the best... I've ever done in school is when I've been working really heavily. I think it's just easier for me to like budget my time and stay interested. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, they say work expands to fill available time. Some of my most successful LSAT students are people who are working and going to school and studying for the LSAT. Yeah. yeah. You got to Hastings. I met you. I was like, oh my God, this girl doesn't even care what brand of law she practices. <laughs> One of my first conversations that I had with you, I remember you being like, oh no, I just want to be a lawyer. I don't really care what ki- what kind. Yeah. And because I was so naive, I thought you were naive. <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, oh man, this is never going to work out with her. She doesn't <laughs> even like want to change the world or doesn't have any idea what she wants to do with it. Like this will never work out. <laughs> of course, as it turns out, I was the one who absolutely should not have been in law school at all because I didn't know what lawyers did. And when I found out what lawyers did, I did not want to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you already knew exactly what lawyers did and you liked what lawyers did and you wanted to do more of that. And so you were um, perfectly in the right spot for someone to go to law school. How quickly were you in moot court? You graded on to moot court after your first year. Is that right? Sort of. So again, I mean, I I feel like all my stories are like, and then this thing happened and I told someone else and it happened. But so uh, my summer, summer of freshman year, some people were doing like clerkships or volunteering at nonprofits and things. I could not afford to have a non-paying job. This was in summer of 2008. Wait, 
Maybe 2009. We started right, in right, 2008, right. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Summer of 2009. This is when nobody was getting paying jobs over the summer, yeah. I think. Yeah, pretty much. I don't know how it was in prior years, but for our year at least, you know, your first summer you did like a unpaid internship. And then your second summer you would do like your summer associate if you were super lucky. And then – you know, you, but you said I can't afford to do that. Yeah, exactly. I really couldn't. I had no money, and but I thought I would try before I just like got a job at Five Hundred Club or what was that bar across the street from your house? Um, across the street from our house, uh-huh. from the old place at Thirty Four Twenty Six. Yeah. Across the street? You're not talking about beauty bar on the corner? No, no like a catty corner, the lesbian bar. Oh, the Lexington. Lexington, yeah. Yeah, Lexington yeah. is right there. Yeah. And you also mentioned 500 Club, which I think is maybe semi-other lesbian yeah. bar. Yeah, maybe that's Guerrero. what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so anyway, uh, I was thinking of, of just bartending, but I decided to apply for a job with the moot court department at Hastings because they were hiring. Okay. And so I had a meeting with Tony Young, who's the director of the program. She was back then and she still is today. And uh, we just hit it off. So I think I was the first person she hired for that summer. Uh, And I worked for the moot court department that summer. Basically, my job was preparing materials for the legal writing classes the following year, like writing a hypothetical and then doing the legal research that the incoming 1Ls would have to do to solve the hypothetical. Okay. Yeah, so I, in that capacity, I got close to the big shots in the moot court department. And at Hastings, moot court is like a big deal. Uh, they have mm-hmm. a really successful team and the school, you know, gives them resources and accolades because it's well-deserved. They do really well. So the following year, even though I think I was pretty terrible at moot court, you know, I I had some good contacts there. And so they were willing to give me a shot and help me get over my terribleness. Didn't you like win everything that you did? (laughs) I don't remember you being terrible. Eventually, eventually. So my writing was always good. My briefs were always good. I got a bunch of best brief awards, but the speaking was harder for me. I really had to learn that. The speaking is harder for everybody. I was terrified. Yeah. It's scary. Scarier than you think. Oh, I hated it so much. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It really, it really was difficult. I don't think that's common in law schools um, that they force you to do moot court in your 1L year. We had everybody as a first, uh, second semester of 1L year, right? Everybody mm-hmm. did moot court. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the, the California Court of Appeal, I think they like took over the whole thing and you have to do your argument and it's scary. Yeah. I was, uh, I was at the Superior Court. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. At the corner of McAllister and Polk mm-hmm. and had to, yeah, I mean, in front of like a three judge robe wearing panel, <laughs> I had to do some argument on some issue that I gave not one shit about at all yeah. and had not really prepared. And that's why it was terrifying. I mean, anybody could make it through it if they actually did the prep. I think it's almost worse to prep. Oh, really? Well, so one thing that I learned from my moot court training was for me, not having prep and not having notes was sort of like liberating perfect. That was like how it had to be done. So in moot court competitions, there was this one competition in particular. I was um, in uh, New Orleans at Tulane and I opened my binder and I had a note card like pasted in my empty binder because someone said that if you come up with no binder, it looks really arrogant and the judges don't like it. So I had an empty (laughs) binder with a note card in it that just said, talk slow and smile. My opponent... After the 
the like moot court match was over, came up to my team and he was like, I looked in your binder and all it said was talk slow and smile. And I immediately shit my pants and wanted to quit. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, yeah, I think that was one of the things I learned in moot court was, you know, sometimes you just have to trust yourself and your ability to talk. Um, that's not the same thing as not preparing. It's true. Oh, we were so prepared, prepared, prepared. Yeah. Like 40 practices prepared. Right. So the key there is know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Not have a script, but know what you're talking about. Right. Do you think that that experience of doing moot court actually prepared you to, to argue or to write or to do what you do now? Hmm. Or is it like, is law school, uh, sometimes I think I have said before that law school is basically just this giant academic competition and it sorts people out, but it's not really like actually related to the practice of law. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that, except specifically related to moot court and maybe even specifically at Hastings, uh, it kind of gave me a preview of what it would be like to work in a law firm because there is the directors and the associate directors who are like the partners And then there are your fellow competitors who are like the associates. You know, you are friends with your classmates, you know, your fellow associates, but you're also kind of competing because depending on how you do and depending on how well the partners like you, you get on the certain competitions that you want, you know, and you're collaborating, but you're also competing. Based on the strength of your argument and your leadership and everything else and other things right like based on you know whether you can crack jokes with the boss and you know whether you show up on time or you're always late so i never obviously was privy to to how moot court actually worked but you were sitting around some table was it smoke was there smoke in the air (laughs) no smoke in the air but yes we were sitting around a table yeah, you know, just just trying to make yourself stand out but not seem like an asshole. and <laughs> <laughs> Or by seeing like the right kind of asshole. Yeah, exactly. Are you still in touch with Tony? A little bit, yeah. I do feel like I owe her a lot and the great experience I had. And they're always in need of volunteers and judges. And that's on my list of things to do. So then second year, you went straight into moot court competition stuff. Uh-huh. You also had electives your second year. Mm-hmm. And then were you working too? Yeah. I was working at Mission Street Food as a waitress. Okay. Yeah. I think that was it. God, I can't remember. Oh, second year summer, I worked for Moot Court again. Okay. Yeah. I was a supervisor that year and I was supervising the prior 1Ls who were doing the job that I was doing the summer before. Okay. And then 3L year? So 3L year, uh, Hastings is kind of great because they do have the option for you to clerk for um, course credit. So... I applied for a job as a clerk at the California Court of Appeals and was accepted. And so I was a clerk for Justice James Landon, who is now retired uh, for a semester. So I was taking like maybe one or two classes and then clerking. Okay. And how was that? It was great. It was really great. I mean, you know, like I said, I like when there's a actual project or a client to have in mind. And this was a really good preview of what that might be like, because it was not theoretical at all. I was working on mostly criminal cases, which wasn't a particular area of interest, but there was a file on my desk and a guy's rap sheet in it. And, you know, they were waiting on an appeal of their case and I was drafting the decision that the justice would, you know, sign and yeah, give to the guy. 
So were you told what your conclusion was? No. Or you made the conclusions and the justice just signed off on it? So I made the conclusion and then the justice had a attorney who was like his right hand guy who would review right. all of my work and we would talk about it and then eventually it would get to the justice who always met with me in person and went over what I wrote and um and then would make his decision. Cool. It was really cool. It was really cool. <laughs> and how long were you there? Uh, one semester. So probably like three months, four months. Okay. And that's just, that's like latter half of 3L year? It was the first half. Oh, first half of 3L year. Yep. Okay. And then what? And then the second half, I was back in classes doing moot court competitions. I was on the nationals team and on the Tulane sports law team. And uh, I was writing blogs for a law firm that uh, practiced employment law. Employment law. Mm-hmm. Is it similar to your immigration employer-based stuff? Are there any overlaps or is it totally different? Only in the sense that it's administrative law. So you're kind of looking at the same like very dry, detailed administrative regulations and following like agency decisions rather than like, you know, the court, like the Supreme Court or whatever. Well, the bar. What did you do for bar prep? Uh, I did online Barbary. Okay. Yeah, it was okay. You know, I probably could have studied more, but it seemed like a reasonable amount. Yeah, I was still working for the law firm that I was blogging for, and I started helping out a little bit with some ongoing litigation because I was hoping to get a little bit of litigation experience. And then I was doing the online Barbary. Okay. And you took the bar once. Yep. And you passed. Yep. And you've been a lawyer. Yeah. And you're happy with your choice. Yeah, I really am. <laughs> Where's your career going? I mean, you're hap- you're you're at a new firm now, right? For six months. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes, I started out with a solo practitioner. Uh, it was just him, basically. That's it. So when I started with my first law firm out of law school, I was the associate attorney and the receptionist and the legal assistant. <laughs> I answered the phones every day and packaged up the FedExes and did all of that stuff. And then eventually the firm grew and we hired a legal assistant and a receptionist and another associate and another one. So um, by the end there, it was uh, still a small firm, but with a bunch more people. And then six months ago, I changed firms to a little bit bigger firm. Uh, My current uh, office has seven attorneys and about that same number of legal assistants and support staff. You still feel like you're learning? I do. New firm? I really do. I mean, immigration is so complicated. It would take a long time, I think, to learn every nuance that there is. Um, when you get into law, you know, you pass the bar exam and that's kind of like a general license to practice law. But if you decide that you want to specialize and get certified in a particular specialty, you can take a test in that specialty. So there's an immigration law one and it covers everything from investors to employment based to asylum and refugees and deportations. And I am not even close to being able to pass that test. You are very busy, obviously, with your job. You work long hours. Um, I don't know. Do you think it's fair to say that you work 50 hours plus per week? Yeah. By the time you have all your billable hours plus, right? You you do do billable hours in your firm, right? Actually, really rarely. At my last oh, firm, okay. we did more on an hourly basis. But the awesome thing about immigration law is that most cases are done on a flat fee. So I have actually haven't billed a billable hour since I started with my new firm. 
Oh wow! That's, so amazing. You yo know, you're you're very happy about that. Yeah, yeah, I am. I mean, any yeah, billing hours. You know, are there certain areas of law where you do more billing of hours than others? Litigation, I think, is a big one because typically your clients are paying you based on your time. Yeah, and that's even like you know, I gotta mark down my five cent photocopy times. 15 because I made 15 copies of this page, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right. For, so you guys have more flat fee for services. Way more, yeah. To do an investor-based whatever certain yep, exactly. immigration this thing. This is the price, here's your installments, and that's it. I see. You work a lot. You commute through LA traffic. You um, are very busy professionally, but you also have a million other interests. So I wanted to ask you a couple just kind of more personal or like media based questions. Um you read a lot. Yeah, yeah. What's the best book you read in 2015? In 2015, wow. Or the best recommendation that you have like for this year? Okay. Well, in 2015 I've been reading mostly comics. Okay. <laughs> um not because it's not like a timing issue or anything, but it's just what's really been what I've really been excited about in 2015. So comic books are big for me. I read them on my tablet. I love the e-reader style of comic. Specific specific comic that mm. you can recommend? Yeah, for sure. Two of them. Uh, Saga by Brian K. Vaughn. Fiona Staples is the artist. Okay. And The Wicked and the Divine, which you've read some of. I read some of both of those. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I read the first, I read the first um, volume of Wicked and Divine. Which you had. Do you have more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. All right. I'll have to get on that. And I read um, maybe about a fir- one volume worth of Saga. And then just, I don't know, for whatever reason, just forgot. There's so many different things to look at. Oh, totally. Yeah. But those are the comic. I mean, and I've read some other great comics, too. But those are the ones that stand out as, like, start to finish. I've loved them. And I really think, like, they're just always going to be great and good. In the past couple of months, we've been to see Upright Citizens Brigade and also Groundlings. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's next on our list of things to go see? Ooh. Well, this summer, I'm going to drag you to Shakespeare in the Park at least twice. <laughs> so that we can play board games in the <laughs> yeah. park. Yeah, and then watch the thing. Uh, Comic-Con. I think we should really go to Comic-Con if we can possibly swing it this year. Comic-Con. What's our what's our route to getting Comic-Con passes for everybody? How, how are we going to do that? So uh, Mike has to do his press credentialing, which I know he was working on, and I don't know if he did it or not. And then um, about mid-year, uh, maybe in the next couple of months or so, they do a lottery for general admission tickets. They give preference tickets to people who have attended in previous years, which kind of sucks okay. because it always sells out and those people have an option to buy again, which leaves very few for the rest of us who want to join up now. But we can try the lottery and see if we can get passes that way. And once we got them, then maybe we keep them forever. Yeah, exactly. Once we get them, then we just are stuck going to Comic-Con every year forever. Okay. Uh, and then as a last, last resort, I have a couple of friends who work in uh, IP and trademarks law who have connections at Comic-Con. They do a couple of panels that offer CLE credit at Comic-Con. Ah. Yeah. So their buddies run those panels and they can usually get a few guest passes, which we can kind of pass around. Sounds like you're on it. I'm on it. I'm way on, on it. it. Yeah. Great. Um, you mentioned to me not too long ago that you were at the point in your career where you were sort of interested in meeting young lawyers, prospective 
lawyer types. Am I putting words in your mouth or no. did you actually say that? No, I actually, <laughs> I actually did say that. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Why is that good for you? So one thing that I've come to realize in my few years of practicing is that having experience is great. It's a good benefit, but it doesn't mean that you're a good lawyer. And I've met some young lawyers who are so hungry and enthusiastic and self-motivated that they have stuff, you know, to teach me. And, you know, in my area of immigration law, there are so many subspecialties, right? And uh, investors and employment and family and all kinds of things, but they intersect every so often. Like I'll have a client with a DUI, you know, more often. Yeah, pretty often. And, you know, I could use someone's expertise to help me understand how they got to their plea and, you know, what the criminal process is like, because that is not something that I deal with every day. Or someone who does a lot of asylum cases, because I have a client who has exhausted all of their remedies in the employment-based area, but might qualify for asylum. So it's really nice to be able to talk with other lawyers about your tricky cases. And I find that, you know, the, the older, more established lawyers, you know, they're busy and tired and a lot of them are kind of like in and out part time of counsel kind of guys. And the ones that really are excited and, and willing to sit down and actually geek out about cases are the young lawyers. Right. So I love meeting younger lawyers and talking to them about cases because I'm as excited as they are. Are you involved in um, groups that that do that now professional development things or more casual things so there's a pretty big national organization of immigration attorneys called ala that is all over the country and there's a big chapter in southern california as you can imagine i actually ran their fifth grade essay contest a couple of years ago <laughs> um, and I've kind of done a few things here and there. I went to their national conference, but I actually have not become a member of AILA yet, but it's sort of on my list to do. It's just like a membership fee and all of the partners in my firm are members. So um, it hasn't really come up yet, but I'm just now, I think, starting to get comfortable in my practice to feel like I have a little bit more wiggle room so that I can have something to offer in a panel or have a little bit more time and flexibility to go to a meeting at 6 p.m. Right. Do you think you're going to ever retire? Or what's your long-term plan as a lawyer? I don't see myself retiring. Uh, yeah, I just, time off is not my ideal. I would like to, I think, you know, I don't know what the terms are, but in, in lots of law firms, they have things like of counsel or consulting counsel, so maybe if I'm old and feeble and I <laughs> can't get to the office, I mean, there's not even going to be any offices by then. Let's, you know, there's not going to be offices. We're all going to be at our houses on virtual reality. So I'll just hologram in and right. work yeah. on some cases. Or your robot doppelganger yeah. will walk yeah. into the office. Exactly. My like whole new youthful body that I stole from a clone that I grew. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I, I really hope, I really, really hope that even when I'm really old, I'm still working on actual cases. Like, I don't want to be the partner who's just doing the schmoozing and, you know, putting my name on the sign. I really want to keep working on cases until I die. Do you still have a copy of that um, sci-fi opus that you wrote? <laughs> I, 
would love to track it down. Uh, my mom lost my birth certificate, so I feel like perhaps my opus also was lost in the shuffle. But Do you remember, was there like one main um, sci-fi conceit or was it just kind of wildly anything goes kind of sci-fi? Oh, I totally remember it. I mean... What was the world like? What year was it or where was it? I don't remember what year it was, but it was written from the perspective of a newspaper reporter and she was interviewing people about the new law. And as the interviews were going on, you know, the the reporter's like, hey, I heard that the U.S. passed a new law and all the immigrants are getting deported. And then the interviewee would say, you know, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Oh, no, the deporters are here. And then the... ice would be banging on the door and drag them out and you know the reporters interviewing the president of the united states who's like you know probably some guy from the backstreet boys and he's like oh yeah you know i passed this law because it's best for the universe oh no the deporters are here and (laughs) (laughs) whoa the president gets abducted wow um do they fly in on like um jetpacks or hover (laughs) maybe they like rappel in (laughs) so that doesn't sound so much sci-fi as just kind of dystopia yeah it's more like post-apocalyptic well yeah like dystopia yeah exactly i see just want to get like mad max have you done any fiction writing since then are you still (laughs) writing no definitely not really yeah how is it that that's in you one time and then that's it you were just trying to achieve a goal so I really think contest. that's just my way. Like, give me a goal and I will do my best at it. But the open-ended, like, I have a story to tell. I don't. Wow. <laughs> I don't have a story to tell. But I really like to tell other people's stories. And, yeah, and you seem very good at it. Um, if if people who have listened this far into the interview, <laughs> <laughs> both of you, if, yeah. If um, people would like to try to contact you somehow, is there a way that they can reach out to you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, So my law firm is Darren Silver and Associates. You can reach me at my firm. Uh, I'll also give out my personal email address, which is N as in Nicole, M as in Marie, B-L-A-C at gmail.com. And I'm on Twitter. My Twitter name is Nikki Marie Black. With Nikki is with two Ks. Delightful. Thanks so much for coming on, Nick. This was really great. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) 